Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on August 9th, 2020 by Pastor Tim Voth. It's the second message in our sermon series, Gospel and Cultural Fluency. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Thanks for listening. So we're going through a sermon series called Gospel and Cultural Fluency. And Rob Schaff kicked it off last time, and now I get to talk with you about one of our culture's values, which is having everything you've ever wanted. So have you ever wanted something? Okay, that's obviously a stupid question. We all want things all the time. And I have three things at home that want stuff perpetually. My kids, they're kind of like want factories. They want all sorts of stuff all the time and aren't afraid to let us know. Anything from the day-to-day normal things like, I want pancakes, I want to play in the yard, I want to go to the skate park, I want a snack, and so on, to some less attainable stuff. I want all the Lego in the universe. I want a rainbow beard. I want a dinosaur. And even stuff that they really shouldn't have, things that could be super dangerous for them. I want a flamethrower. I want to try to fly off the house. And they even have dreams of things that they want to do or be. I want to be a cowboy when I grow up, or a pilot, or Luke Skywalker. Basically, they want all the things. There are also a lot of things that they want that they probably can't articulate. You know, safety, love, an encouraging home, happy parents. They have dreams and desires, and they have things that they want. They want what they want, and when they get what they want, they're happy. But when they get every impulsive thing they want, they can become spoiled, we would say. And when they don't get what they want, well, you probably know how that goes. They want what they want, and it is hard for them to see past their desires to the bigger picture of their lives and to the lives of people around them. Now, it's a good thing that we all grow up and one day and become perfect, selfless, content adults who have no wants. And even if we do and we don't get them, we act reasonably, we understand, and we immediately see the bigger picture and find contentment. Ha! That's not so, at least not for me. We all have wants. We all have dreams. Dreams for what we could be, dreams for who we could be and what we could do in this world. And dreams, aspirations, and goals, they're good, they're, they're necessary to have. But unfulfilled dreams and aspirations can bring you way down into a pit. You know, you want to get into this career, you want to live in this neighborhood, you want your kids to turn out a certain way, you want your day to go a certain way, you want this paycheck, these friends, this outcome, you want to do this for God, you want to be someone who makes a difference in this world. You have a dream, and if it it dies, deep apathy and discouragement can follow. On the other hand, people whose lives seem charmed where they get everything they want may actually become spoiled in the process of getting everything that they wanted. So which is it? Is having all that we could ever ask for good or bad? Well, I want to look at someone in the Bible as a case study for dreams. Joseph, the dreamer. In his life, we can see how his dreams for himself might actually reflect our current culture's quest for a free, autonomous, fulfilling life. But ultimately, how through all of his discouragements, dashed dreams and detours, and even eventual fulfilled dreams, he learns some profoundly good news about God and his dreams for Joseph. And so let's dive into Genesis 37. And if you want, it would be great for you to read the whole thing later, more in depth. It is 13 chapters. So right now, we'll just kind of do a bird's eye view survey of Joseph's life. And so Joseph was the second last son born to Jacob, who was later renamed Israel. So he's one of the 12 sons or tribes of Israel. So now let's start in verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. 
He was the boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. So he's a bit of a snitch and he's his father's favorite and he has a coat that just proclaims that loud and clear. So keep that in mind. Let's keep going. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mothers and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And so he has these dreams, and it doesn't quite say where they come from, but he clearly has aspirations to be someone. If he didn't, he probably would have just kept quiet. He's almost the youngest, but look what he's got going for him. He's his father's favorite, and he's given him this coat with many colors. And now it's hard to say what is motivating these dreams, but it seems like Joseph is someone who's not going to let his birth order define his future. He won't let fate or destiny or tradition set his path for him. He's going to carve his own way, make a future for himself. He's free to do whatever he wants, and it looks like he's got some pretty incredible things in mind. He's an autonomous, free-thinking, big-dreaming individual that has a pretty amazing plan for his life. And now I think it is this value that's mirrored in our culture. We're encouraged to dream big and pursue our dreams and with all our heart. And now that's all great. But we're encouraged to find our meaning, our fulfillment, and our identity in what we do and who we can become. This is a cultural value. And here's how Osganes, who I'll refer to more later, puts it. The modern world offers an endless range of choice and change. Choice is no longer just a state of mind. Choice has become a value, a priority, a right. To be modern is to be addicted to choice and change. These are the unquestioned essence of modern life. To be free to choose our own path, autonomous. No one can tell you what to, what to want. Look deep within, find your dreams, pursue those, get those dreams. Then you'll be happy, fulfilled, and whole. And so Joseph decides to share these dreams with his brothers, and they're obviously not too thrilled about it. Let's look at verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will, become, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Oh, that's good. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Great. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of the hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So does he get his dream? Nope. All his potential, all his freedom, all his technicolor future is stripped from him. 
His brothers aren't bowing to him as king. He's not enjoying the freedom and fulfillment kingship would endow on him. He's actually lower than his brothers. He's in a pit. He doesn't even have the freedom to choose anything anymore, not even water. He gets the exact opposite of his dream. And it's only going to get worse because in the next verses, his brothers sell him to a passing Midianite who trades, who takes him uh, to be a slave in Egypt. And that's how it goes sometimes. I mean, if you've ever had your dreams dashed or changed, whether by the cruel, chaotic hand of chance or luck or, you know, foolish decisions or bad timing or sin or other people's malevolence, you can relate to Joseph down there. And when you're down in a pit, all sorts of things can start to happen. You may begin to question, why did this not go the way I wanted? Why did God let this happen? Why didn't God want me to get what I wanted? Was my dream wrong? Should I have not wanted it? Is it wrong to want things in life? Is life fundamentally unfair? Wasn't I chosen? Wasn't I favored? Who am I? Who is God? In the pits of life, our views of ourselves and God can begin to unravel and we can get bitter at existence and even God himself. When our values of freedom have been, you know, kind of toppled, we might become discouraged and even disappointed in God. Maybe our dreams were good, not just selfish. Maybe they were a bit mixed, but why wouldn't God give me the desires of my heart that are good, even my good dreams? And here's where I think what our culture values comes up short. If our fulfillment is found in autonomy, freedom, choice, attainment of dreams, then what if our lives begin to feel constrained, destined, out of our control, and ultimately not what we wanted, or at least very different than what we had expected? But here's where I think it is important to be fluent in the language of the culture and of the gospel because Christians and non-Christians alike find themselves here. And it is in the pit, right in the midst of our unfulfilled desires, that we can learn more about God's desire for us. I think of the Chronicles of Narnia, mainly because I think of that all the time in every situation. But I think of book three, The Horse and His Boy. Now in it, the main character, a boy named Shasta, who is also a slave, meets a talking horse named Bree, and he seeks to escape his slavery and go to Narnia, the land of Aslan the lion, who's the Jesus figure in the book. And on this journey, everything goes wrong for him. He encounters tons of lions which scare his horses. He gets separated from the rest of the company. He finds himself in a forest, lost and alone. All his hopes of freedom dashed. And it's there that he reflects on his journey and begins to feel so much pity for himself that his tears begin to roll down his cheeks. Why couldn't things just work out? But then he hears Aslan breathing beside him. He pours out his heart to him, and Aslan tells him that Aslan was secretly there in every disappointment. Every lion that Shasta encountered was actually Aslan. He directed Shasta's steps the whole time, and Shasta just couldn't see it. Shasta's desires didn't pan out, but Aslan's did, and only Aslan knew what would make the journey work out for the best. And now, spoiler alert for this book and for Joseph's life, Eventually, Shasta discovers that he is actually Prince Kor, the long-lost twin elder brother of Prince Corwin of Arkenland. And Shasta saves Arkenland from a great disaster, and in so doing, he fulfills a prophecy that his kidnappers attempted to thwart. And so too with Joseph. We eventually see that his dream was prophetic, and he saves Israel through his dream, even though his brothers tried to destroy it. And neither Shasta nor Joseph were subject to blind fate. They were called. And calling is the idea that we're not left alone in this universe to pursue our whims in our hearts, but that the one true living God who made you, who knows you and calls you by name, is calling you both to do something and to be someone. 
calling isn't rigid determinism where we have to figure out God's one path for us, but rather it's the assurance that in all things God is present and active and will ultimately accomplish His will in our lives. And our culture's view of freedom has some positive sides, but when it becomes the main driving force of our lives, it has a lot of downsides. And one author put it this way, our abstract ideal of autonomy, no matter how admirable, is radically incomplete. It's incomplete because it doesn't inform us how to do, how to be and what to do when our dreams don't come true. Or how to deal with the sometimes crippling anxiety that comes from having way too much choice with the responsibilities square on our shoulders. I mean, you often see this in people trying to, to determine their whole destiny on one choice of which college, which career, which, cl- which class, and it can be crippling. It doesn't inform us how to not get spoiled when our dreams actually come true, and it ultimately makes us self-obsessed as we try to find what will fulfill us. But here's how I think the idea of calling is the gospel antidote to our culture's autonomy illness. And I think Joseph begins to understand this. If you keep reading, the story says this, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So Joseph's dream hadn't come true but it said the Lord was with him in everything he did. Then later, after being falsely accused of trying to seduce the officer of Pharaoh's wife, he goes to prison. First pit, then slave, then prison. But listen to this in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So just as Aslan had been with Shasta through all his disappointments, so God was with Joseph in everything. And so this is part of how the idea of calling in the gospel addresses our culture. Osgines, in his book, The Call, which I would highly recommend, says this, We are ultimately called not to something, but to someone. Yes, Joseph had a dream, but he was not ultimately defined by his dreams and desires. He was defined by the God who knew him, was with him, and was ultimately sovereign over his life and his circumstances. Had he stayed fixated on his dreams, he would have slumped through life in a mess of self-pity, you know, dejected, fatalistic, discouraged, and disappointed. Had he thought of himself as a free, autonomous agent, this wouldn't have fit into his worldview. He hadn't chosen this. But something else animated him, and he lived out his faith in God no matter where he was. Joseph knew the God of his fathers. He knew the one who, who made him. He could dream all he wanted, but ultimately the one who dreamed him into existence had dreams for him. And I don't think God dismisses our desires, no matter how small or shallow or even tainted with self, but I think he shapes them. And while this might seem to limit our freedom and go against the grain of our cultural values, I think it is actually the only true answer to the freedom that we long for. By trusting God's active work over our lives, we are freed from the anxiety to choose perfectly the path and free from the roller coaster of happiness and discouragements that plague us when we're so deeply attached to our dreams. 
when we trust that God is at work in our lives, then we can be certain that every single discouragement, detour, trial, misstep, redirection is all woven into the fabric of God's call over our lives. That is freedom. And when our desire is God himself, then no matter where we are, we can live out our call to the one God who has called us to himself. In slavery, prison, exile, Joseph could live out his call trusting that this was somehow part of God's master plan for his life because God was with him. And I think it's important to know that it says God was with him. I mean, just this week, I had a pretty timely conversation with a stranger at the bus stop outside our church. It was a really good conversation, and they said, you know, they weren't religious and they didn't go to church, but they believed God wouldn't give them more than they could handle and that somehow their struggle was meant to be. And I wholeheartedly affirm that, but that's not the full gospel. We do take comfort in a God who directs our life, but the gospel says that God himself is with us. And he can claim to be God with us because God himself experienced what we experienced. He became a man. Philip Yancey in his book, Disappointment with God, says this, No one is exempt from tragedy or disappointment. God himself was not exempt. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed for another way than the cross. But he knew deeply that what it was like to not hear an answer from God, to not hear the answer you want. His freedom was taken. He was literally bound and forced down a path of suffering. And he went down into a pit of death for us. He was stripped of his robe for us. He died an undeserved death for us. And he rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death and lives forever in the highest heights for us. And his love makes him both a sympathetic to and sovereign over our plight. And now that same steadfast love shapes us through every high and every low. And I think this is where we begin to see what God was after in Joseph's life, his character. God cared more that, about Joseph's character than him getting what he wanted. He'd been a broken, humbled man, a far cry from his technicolor teenage self. And through trusting in God, he made every situation he was in his calling to be obedient to God. And God blessed him for that. And he eventually becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. And now in the midst of a massive famine, we see that Joseph's dream from years and years ago, it actually comes true. Listen to this. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. I think he wanted to test them to see if they had changed. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Joseph's brothers come from Israel to Egypt because of the famine. And Joseph had been saving wheat, faithfully living out his calling. But does this look like the triumphant, arrogant, self-absorbed reaction we might have expected from young Joseph had his brothers bowed to him so many years ago? No. He runs out of the room because he can barely contain his tears. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brothers and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. God so shaped them that when he finally got his dream, he was ready for it. Since God is God, he has a divine perspective and knows the future. You know, our dreams are often so small and self-absorbed. And what am I going to do? And will it be fulfilling for me? And will it make me happy? But surrendering to God's call on our lives means placing our lives in the hands of the one who wants to shape us, shape our character exactly how God wants to, so that if we get our dreams... 
They don't lead us to idolatry, but rather to generosity, gratitude, compassion, and humility. I mean, had he had gotten his dreams as a kid, it probably would have been bad news. Like Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, we never imagined that getting our heart's desire might be the absolute worst thing for us. He probably would have destroyed his already broken family with even more hostility, jealousy, power plays, and hatred, and he himself would have been spoiled, which would have had massive ramifications for you know, his, his nation and for the world. But God loved him so much that he didn't want that to happen. Instead, he took him on a journey of character so that his dreams could align with God's dreams for him and his family and his nation. You know, rather than demanding service from his brothers as king, he used his power to give them bread and life. And I think this pattern happens over and over again in scripture. And if you're paying attention, it happens in people's lives. You know, someone has a desire, a dream. God strips them of it and they're shaped in the process and somehow given that desire back, but with a renewed heart. Think of Abraham with Isaac, Job, Peter, Paul. And so maybe you're a young person, you know, looking ahead with a future bright and brimming with options and endless opportunity. Or maybe you're older looking back through every twisty turn. Or maybe you're somewhere in the middle, you know, not too sure how this whole thing is going to pan out. But listen to the stunning conclusion Joseph reaches. A principle I think actually guided his whole life. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He has come to learn that he's not. For you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. You know, I think we and our world need to know that's true. If Jesus is our supreme desire, our dream is to be like him, with him, follow him, loving him, then we can look at our lives and see his call on our life working all evil out for good. If our dreams are our ultimate pursuit, we'll be paralyzed by anxiety, idolatrous with every gain, devastated with every unfulfilled desire, and ultimately focused on self. If we follow God's call on our lives, we will have peace that no matter where we are, God is intimately with us. We'll be humbled at every advancement, content with unfilled desires, and focused on God's bigger picture, our freedom in God's sovereignty, our fulfillment in Jesus' love, and our dreams saturated and guided by the Spirit. And so what does this mean for you? God is calling you right now, right where you are, to know him deeply. You know, yes, we must plan and, and aspire and set goals, and you're free to do so, and you should. You know, pick a college, try to find a house, pursue a career, whatever it is, dream. But you're not ultimately defined by your dreams. You are defined by the God who calls you to himself. If God is what you want, you will get what you want, because God wants to give you all of himself. And then that relationship will transcend any place you find yourself in. Even if it isn't where you thought you'd be, it will transcend any setback, any course correction, pit or prison or palace or wrong choice. Again, Osganes says this, 
Calling subverts the deadly modern idolatry of choice. Only one thing can conquer choice, being chosen. Through faith in Christ, you are chosen. And he has dreams for you that you can never even begin to imagine. He has chosen you in him right now, right where you are, no matter your job, your status, your past, your present, your future, your income bracket, or anything. And so back to my kids. My kids want lots of things, and I want lots of things for them, and that's kind of where the power struggle happens. But if I were to boil down my interaction with my kids to just them saying what they want and just me saying yes or no, that would be a horrible dynamic and would be missing like 99% of what it is like being with my kids. I would say, ultimately, I just want to be with my kids. And ultimately, they just want to hang out with their dad. And in that context of love, all wants, both mine and theirs, at once don't matter and at once are actually being met. That is love and that is freedom. That's what it's like with God. If you boil down your relation to God as him just giving or not giving you things, you've missed it. He wants you yourself. That's his dream. Not to control you from a distance, but to know you in the only truly loving relationship there is. That's the gospel. That's what we need. And that's what our culture needs. And that dream is, is possible anytime, anywhere, to anyone who trusts in Jesus. And so let's be fluent in that language. And with our culture, let's understand people's longing for freedom and then speak Jesus to it. Speak it with our words. You know, only true freedom, autonomy, fulfillment is found in answering the call to follow Jesus. And speak it with our actions. In our jobs, we live out the kingdom like Joseph, not complain when we aren't where we want to be. We live out peace and trust in a world of unlimited options, contentment in every discouragement, humility in every gain, generosity in every aim. We weep with those who weep over broken dreams and failed plans and unexpected, devastating setbacks. If possible, pointing them to Jesus as the true sympathizer. And we celebrate people's dreams coming true while pointing to Jesus as the true sovereign God who alone gives everlasting fulfillment. And so a few questions to think about and discuss with others as you go into your week. One, can you think of a time where getting what you wanted wasn't great for you? What about a time when it was or a time you didn't get what you wanted and you were thankful afterwards that you didn't? Two, how does the gospel help us when we don't or do get everything we've ever wanted? And three, how is the idea of being called an antidote to our culture's view of freedom? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.